shaytan al-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and project. Allahumma sallallahu ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So this is going to be the third lesson in the series uh, addressing general prophethood. Just as a quick recap from where we left off last time, uh, the lesson had to do with providing proof for the necessity of prophethood and revelation. Uh, so as a follow-up to that lesson, that lesson really consisted in pre presenting one big argument for the necessity of prophethood, why <coughs> human beings absolutely require something beyond their human reason, human knowledge, and that thing, we gave conditions for it, and those conditions amount to being nothing else but revelation, divine revelation. So in the, uh, the book, the author continues with where he left off by now adding a lesson to address some objections and questions that may arise as a result of the proof that we presented. So generally speaking, this lesson is made up of three big objections or questions having to do with prophethood or the proof that was presented for prophethood and the replies or responses and the responses to them. So the first question, the first objection is keeping in mind what we said and inshallah we'll recap the proof in a second, keeping in mind what we said about prophethood being a necessity for all of humanity, for all of human beings, then how come is it that it seems that we find prophethood, revelation, only taking place in one spot on earth, namely the Middle East? So that's the first question. The second question is, if the purpose of prophethood is to guide humanity, then how come when we look at the history of humankind and until now, and even in the times of the prophets themselves, do we find so much conflict, so much difference, and so much corruption and disobedience of God and so on and so forth, which means that prophethood is not really effective and it's not really working as a means of guiding humanity. And then the last objection or the last question is, and as we'll see, this is really made up, it's a complex uh, objection or a complex question made up of two sub-questions, but it amounts to saying how come the prophets did not contribute more to human advancement and use that to the advantage of the purposes of prophethood, so namely guiding human beings. Why don't we see the prophets using more of human sciences and human development and things that are useful for human beings and then using that for the purposes for which they were sent, which is guiding humanity. Okay, so the lesson is basically those three questions and the answers to them. So before going into the first objection, a reminder of the proof that we gave, just so that we have it clearly in our minds. So the proof basically said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created human beings, so we don't establish that point of the proof because we did in part one of the lessons. Okay, so now that we know that there is a God, and he has certain attributes, we're saying, including that it's a personal God and he acts with wisdom and so on and so forth. We said that the action of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because they are always based on 
wisdom, as we, when we discussed the attribute of wisdom in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we said that there must be a purpose for the creation of human beings. So in our case, as creatures, the purpose of our creation is that we reach our perfection. And this is what we refer to as worship. It's going back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, reaching the end for which we were created. That's the perfection of every creature. The creature reaches the end, establishes, uh, accomplishes the end, the purpose for which they were created. So in philosophy, in the philosophical language, they refer to that as perfection. So the perfection of a human being is acting based on volunteer, voluntary choices, freedom of choice, willfully acting in a manner that is compatible with and allows them to meet that purpose, goes back to the end for which they were created. So that was first premise. The, first, the second premise is in order to act in that manner, there are a number of ingredients that we need. One of them, as we said, is you have the will and you have the power to act and you're in, a, in circumstances and conditions that actually allow you to act in that manner. Okay, but there's one more ingredient and it's the key one, which is knowledge. So for, in order for me to act in a way that is allowing me to go back to the end for which I was created, I have to have knowledge for about that end why is that end necessary for me and how is that compatible or is my perfection okay so the main ingredient that we talked about was knowledge so we were created with a purpose with an end and it's perfection that perfection is only reachable through freedom of choice acting in a free manner in a way that's compatible with that end and in order to do that I need the knowledge that allows me to act in that way. So we come to human knowledge. And we said human knowledge, the way we summarized it in the last lesson, is made up of two big components. There's other things that we can include in there, but we said it's made up of two big components. One of them being sense perception, the, all the data, and all the information that we gather through our five senses, and then we have reason. Those two together make up what we call human knowledge. Is that sufficient? So we explored that and we said, no, it's not sufficient. It has limits. So we explored the limitations of human knowledge. And we said something else is required. We gave those conditions for that thing what is, that is required to meet the end. And we said it can be nothing but revelation. Okay, so that's the summary very quickly of the last lesson, the previous lesson. So building on that, keeping that in mind, objection one. If we're saying that all of humanity requires revelation, it cannot rely on its human knowledge, the human means that it has, to reach the knowledge that it needs to meet the end for which it was created, requires revelation in that sense, then how come don't we see that revelation taking place in a universal manner to all of humanity? And we see that it's geographically limited, located in one spot on earth, which is the Middle East. So that's the gist of the objection. And then there's a second layer to that same objection, which is especially, so keeping that in mind, especially when we look back in history and we know how difficult it would have been for human beings to move from one place on earth to another or communicate with each other. So this adds another layer. 
But generally speaking, that's the objection. So what's the answer to this first objection? The first point um, as a reply, as a response to this is based on what we know from the Holy Quran, we completely reject this, the premise, the assumption made in this objection, which is prophethood or revelation only having taken place in one spot, one place, one geographical area on earth. Okay, and we'll look at a couple of verses in general, but basically, if the objection is made in this way, what we need to keep in mind is there's an implied assumption in there. So we need to explore who says, who says that prophethood or revelation was limited to. You may be looking at one type of scripture. You may be looking at one thing, one source of information that seems to indicate, but you have no proof. This is an assumption that you're making that prophethood or revelation was limited to one geographic location. And then we'll look at what the Holy Quran says about that in a second. The second um, part of the answer to this is when we talk about guidance, so the point, the purpose of prophethood is to guide human beings. Guidance is made up of two other ingredients. One of the ingredients is for human beings to actually want to be guided, one, and two, that there are no obstacles preventing others from having access to that guidance. So on one side, you have to have the will to be guided. And on the other side, there must be no obstacles preventing you from being guided. Why are we mentioning this? Because if we look at the proof or the, this objection to the proof, the objection is basically saying, Ultimately, it's not everybody on earth who would have access to that guidance. There are limitations to the geographic location, and this can be extended to time and space, both of them, the time at which revelation took place, and the areas where it took place. So what about everybody else? What's their excuse? What's their way of accessing, reaching the guidance that is taking place? They have no access to it. It was limited in time, limited in space. So the first part of the answer, and then we'll go back to the second. So the first part, as we said, what does the Holy Quran say? The Holy Quran in multiple verses, here are some of them, says that there is no nation, there is no group of people that is considered one collectivity for whom there was no prophet, no messenger sent. So here are a few of the verses, so something to keep in mind as a general rule, and we talked about that in the last lesson. The, our belief, the belief that we have, and that there is a continuity in this guidance and access to revelation. Okay, so keeping that in mind, some verses related to this. In one verse it says, and there is not a nation without a warner having lived among them. A second verse that says, and we certainly sent amongst every nation a messenger with the admonition, with the message, serve Allah and avoid evil. A third verse, and messengers we have narrated to you earlier, and messengers we have not narrated to you. And this one is an important and interesting verse. 
Because if we look in the Holy Quran, when someone looks at it, let's say in the Quran specifically, and we could do the same thing with other, other sources of scripture, the Holy Quran mentions what? 20 to 25 messengers and prophets. Depending on a few of them, there's a disagreement whether they are saints or they are prophets or they are messengers and which category they fall in. So let's say a grand total, a maximum of 25. Well, if we go back to our narrations, I think everybody has heard the narrations that say that we have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent 124,000 prophets. And then we have narrations that explain the different categories of these prophets. And we have narrations that say that in addition to those prophets, the messengers who happen to be in a different category and most likely of a higher rank, they number at 313. Okay, so if we keep all of that in mind, certainly we know that the 25 that are mentioned in the Holy Quran are only a sample. They were mentioned as examples of what has happened to previous nations, something that is relevant to the people receiving this revelation. It does not mean that it's restricted to and limited to those whose names we now know because of the Holy Quran. There are many others that we do not know. We don't know their names, we don't know their stories, and the Holy Quran tells the Holy Prophet, we have not even told you about them. Some of them we have told you about, and some of them we have not told you their story. Okay, so that's first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is having more to do with, okay, so there are people who are on earth, but this guidance is not going to reach them. So is the issue, is the problem that we have in the lack of effectiveness of prophethood itself, as the objection claims, or is the issue somewhere else? So our answer is the issue is no problem with, there's no problem with prophethood or revelation itself. Revelation did what it's supposed to do. The issue is either with the will of the people or the issue is with the obstacles that some people have put that prevent that prophethood, the message of the prophethood, the revelation of reaching the others. Otherwise, it should have reached. Okay, so the first part, as we said, is the will. And we'll talk more about that portion, that, that <coughs> first part of the second point, the will, more in the two other objections. We'll emphasize on that. But the idea is, if there are people who lack the will to receive the guidance, what else is there to do? That's built entirely on this idea of the freedom of choice. There is no compulsion. Faith based on an, uh, being imposed from the outside on you is not faith. It doesn't do the purpose of faith. The purpose that faith is supposed to have for you is not accomplished that way. It may do other things. It may help you with your social order, your political system, things like that. But it doesn't accomplish the ends of faith. So that part does not count. So it needs to be based on your free will. So of course there are people who did not believe. But maybe they didn't believe, not because there's an issue with prophethood not having reached them. It's because they did not have the will to believe. That's one part. The second part, and this one is very important, throughout the Holy Quran, and there are chapters in the Quran that really emphasize on this, this idea of dhulm in a, from more of a social aspect. Why is there so much insistence on these mala' and this word of mala' in the Holy Quran, those elites who are usually around the tyrants, 
around the, the Fir'aun and around the kings and those who are the, the staunchest and the most stubborn of the disbelievers and the ones fighting the prophets. Why does the Quran insist on them all the time? It's because the damage they do goes way beyond themselves. That becomes an obstacle not only to others living with them, preventing them from believing, it actually creates a shift in history. History would happen, would work in a very different way if those obstacles, if those impediments were not in place. And that's why we see the prophets playing that important role against them. Whenever they can, they try to remove those obstacles. And this is not the time to open that whole debate and discussion, but the entire philosophy of the defensive wars and war in Islam, and well, that's a big part of it. It's to remove the obstacle. It's not to impose faith on anyone. It's to make sure that everybody has the freedom to actually hear the message as it is and then decide for themselves. But if you're creating circumstances, you're creating conditions where it's even impossible to access the truth, then if they can, the messengers, the prophets, these divinely appointed people are going to take measures, if they can, if they have the people and if they have the capabilities, to actually try to remove those impediments and those obstacles. Now, of course, this opens the door to a huge debate, and we have a lot of literature about this in Islam, and we don't have time to get into it right now. That has to do with how can I put the burden of the responsibility of having to believe on people who are not receiving the truth. If there is this impediment and they have nothing to do with it, then what do we do about them? And generally speaking, we've talked a little bit about this, and inshallah there will be other opportunities to talk more about this, but we believe that our faith tells us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fair in this matter. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deals with people and judges people based on what they know. So if there's absolutely no way for someone to access the truth, then they are judged and based on what they do know. Okay, but we also do have verses in the Holy Quran, for instance, where in some of them, we're told the angels, when they are getting the wrongdoers in the moment of death, and they deal with them, and they tell them while they're dying or in the afterlife, in Yom Al-Qiyamah, the Day of Judgment, they will be asked, why did you not believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What was lacking? And their answer is going to be, we were the ones who were subjected, we were under the domination of someone else when we were alive. So they want to put the responsibility on someone else. And the response that comes back from the angels is, what was not Allah's earth, Allah's land, was it not vast for you to travel elsewhere, for instance? So even that, we see the Holy Quran does not accept the argument at face value. It says there is a responsibility. You are supposed to take this matter with a lot of importance and understand that this is going to be your ultimate eternal destiny. You have to deal with it as an important thing. You can't just say, well, it's difficult for me. I know there is a truth, but I'm not sure if I can reach it. So I just stop there and I don't try to find the truth or to apply the truth once I found it. Face value doesn't work here. It cannot be a, a cheap, easy uh, excuse of that sort. Okay? That was the, the second point, so the absence of obstacles. And finally, about the divine intervention. So we do know that there are instances, there are cases where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will intervene. So this could be through supernatural means, through miracles. So when does this happen? 
right? That's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not remove all those obstacles through supernatural means, through miracles. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not make all these people accept faith through supernatural means? So for the first point, the free will, well, of course, that defies free will. So it stops there. The second point about the obstacles. The obstacles are supposed to be part of the system that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created. It's not supposed to be an easy life where everything just happens in a way where it's easy to just believe and there's no test and no tribulation and the purpose and the point, and we'll come back to this again and again in today's lesson, the purpose is the test. The purpose is to go through the difficulty. So it's not as easy as saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will use a miraculous means. In fact, when we study the Holy Quran, when we study in our theology, Quranic interpretation, the scriptures that we have, everything points to one, one outcome. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and therefore, by extension, the messengers, the imams, only use supernatural means, miraculous means, in one situation. When it is absolutely hopeless, when there is no other way of getting something across, or removing an evil, or, 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 and truth itself is in jeopardy. So it has nothing to do with this or that prophet. It has nothing to do with their personal situation and their personal benefit and them trying to defend themselves <coughs> or all of that. They've already sacrificed all of that the day they became a prophet or messenger. It's not about themselves. Yeah. It just maybe I missed something. So, uh, so we're talking here why it was limited to a specific geographic thing. Uh, you mean that in the other geographic, the, the conditions weren't there? That was. So now we're talking about the second point in the conditions. Yeah. We're saying that sometimes there are obstacles preventing people. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a prophet to, let's say, one area, okay, and we're, our claim is if things were to happen naturally, that message would actually reach the rest of humanity. There would be no issue with that. But because there are others, there are tyrants, there are unjust people who will come and put conditions obstacles, they will prevent that message from being communicated. So here is an additional objection. So why doesn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remove those obstacles? Why doesn't He remove those impediments so that everybody can get access to the same information, to the same truth? And we're saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not remove things through miraculous means. The impediments and the obstacles are part of the responsibility of every nation and every human being. This is a wrong that needs to be resolved. And it's your responsibility to resolve it. And if you don't, then you have lacked. You have not conducted yourself in a manner that is suitable with you understanding what your responsibility is. So if you look at history, we see that there's a burden, there's a responsibility and a duty for people to understand the conditions in which they're in and do something about it. And if they don't do anything about it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to intervene through miraculous means unless the notion of truth itself is in such jeopardy, is at such risk that there is no other way. In that case, there might be an intervention from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to create conditions where a reasonable person in a reasonable situation can actually look objectively, fairly, justly to both sides of the equation of the arguments being presented and make up their minds. Go back to their innate true nature. He doesn't want to create a situation where you have no choice but to believe because it's 
so manifest and so clear that there is no test here. This is not the point. The point is that the situation is fair for you to look at all aspects, all arguments, and make up your mind. That's the point. So if the miracle happens, or too many miracles happen in front of you, well, where's the test? But if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as it says in the Holy Quran, inna Ibrahim kana ummah, Ibrahim, peace upon him, was a whole nation. He was one human being, and the Quran says he was a nation. He represented faith at that time. Well, if Ibrahim dies at that moment, there's going to be a problem with the truth itself reaching anyone else. So there might be a need for a divine intervention to preserve that human being and not let him die in the fire that he was thrown into, for instance. Okay, so that's only the, a quick answer to this additional objection that may be said, which is, why does not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intervene to remove those obstacles? Okay, this is not in the book, this is all additional to the book. Okay, so we covered that. The second objection. So still keeping in mind the same proof, the necessity for revelation, the necessity for prophethood. The claim that we make as believers is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses prophethood, uses revelation to guide human beings. And yet when we look at the history of humanity, we see that there is a lot of corruption, there is a lot of disobedience, there is a lot of atheism, rejection of God, rejection of religion, re rejection of morality, all those things that prophethood is supposed to be teaching people. Furthermore, if we look at the people who claim to be followers of the prophets themselves, we find a lot of disobedience and corruption and sinning and even conflict and even war between them. So if prophethood is an effective means of actually guiding humanity, then none of this would, should be perceivable, should be seen when we study history and when we study human societies. So here, it's a direct attack, and the reason I mention this is it's good for us to recognize the, the format, the, the core of the argument, because it comes back in different formats, okay, different versions, but at the core it's the same, the same idea that there is something ineffective about this idea of prophethood and revelation and the manner in which people who believe in the monotheistic religions believe in it. So the first idea, and that's why we said a lot of this lesson is built on this principle, is this notion of the freedom of will. You are supposed to be reaching the truth and accepting the truth based on a freedom of will. It has to be a matter of choice. So implied in there, if we're saying that for prophethood to be effective, everybody has to be a believer, there's something implying that this guidance is almost compulsory, obligatory. There's no more choice. Our notion of guidance is not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forcefully makes people believers. Our notion of guidance is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates conditions in which people have enough to be able to be guided if they choose to be guided, if they choose to accept guidance. There is no guarantee in there that people are actually going to 
become believers. And if people end up not believing, it does not mean that there's an issue with the guidance. All it means is they have the freedom of choice not to believe if they choose not to believe. It's the same thing as, you know, if you take an example, if you want to build a school or a hospital, and someone comes to use the services that you have put in place. You say that person benefited from what I created, therefore it's successful. But there are people who are deciding not to come to your hospital or not to come to your school. Does it mean that the school or the hospital are not successful? No, they chose not to come. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put the institution in place, used the means to get the guidance to reach the people. This does not show that it's ineffective because people have chosen not to accept, not to do, to do anything with that faith. Okay? The second point is, and I think this one we've already explained and we'll have a few verses about it too. The purpose is the test. The point of our creation is to go through a test. There has to be something that forces human beings to make those tough choices. If it's not a tough choice, it's not meeting the purpose. So the situation of guidance that people are expecting cannot be such that there is no choice to be made. There has to be a choice. There has to be difficulty. There has to be you going back to your conscious and introspection and weighing things and coming up with an answer for yourself. Okay? That's the second point. The purpose is the test. And then here, very quickly, the war argument. The war argument is not part of the lesson. I'm mentioning it because there's something that may be implied in here. And again, it's not part of the book, but obviously this is something very classic that we hear again and again. And it could be implied or extracted from something that was mentioned at the beginning of that argument, which is, if we look at the people who follow the religions, we see that there's conflict between them. So if we push this idea to, to its limit, to where it has gone recently, it's this idea that religion by nature is violent. Okay, so this is not part of the lesson, but I thought I'd make that extension and just answer it in 30 seconds, just to give you the keys to it. This requires a, a lengthy discussion on its own to be dismantled properly, this, this idea, this fallacy, that if there is violence, if there's war, if there's conflict in the world, the source of it or the main source of it is religion. Very quickly, if we go back, let's say, to the First and Second World Wars, the main reason for them had nothing to do with religion. And if we look at the tens, if not hundreds of millions of people who have died over the past couple of centuries with ideas and ideologies like communism, if we look at what Stalin did or Mao did or what happened in South America or, 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 it's difficult to spin that into a religious war. And so to say the main reason for war and conflict and, and these kinds of, this kind of violence in the world is religion, it's too easy, too cheap to say it without you need proofs and you need arguments and then they need to be dismantled. But that's a quick answer for that. So these are some, as we said here, the purpose is the test. Okay, so we said first, when people say that if there is prophethood, then there should be no misguidance. There should be no sinning. There should be no disobedience anywhere on earth. But because there is, then prophethood is not effective. 
And we're saying no. All it means is people have chosen not to accept the message that we find within prophethood and the revelation. And so to add to that, we say the purpose of the creation is to go through the test. It's to be tested and then we'll see how people do. The point is not for everybody just to be blindly guided and then we say, so prophethood is a successful, effective means of guiding people. So if we look at some verses of the Quran, the first one, and this is in Surah Al-Baqarah, there's a mention of a number of prophets and then it says, those are the messengers, some of whom we gave favors over others. Of them are those to whom Allah spoke, and some of them He raised in rank, and we gave Jesus, son of Mary, manifest proofs, and strengthened Him with the Holy Spirit. Had Allah wished, those who succeeded them would not have fought each other after the manifest proofs had come to them. Had Allah wished. If Allah wanted to impose faith on people, if Allah wanted everybody to have the same faith and the same belief, Allah subhanahu wa could have created that kind of order and that kind of world. But they deferred. So there were among them those who had faith, and there were among them those who were faithless. And had Allah wished, they would not have fought one another, but Allah does whatever He desires. And of course, we just explained why. Because the point is to go through the test and see if you end up with faith or not. Another verse, Indeed, we have made all that is on the earth an adornment for it, that we may test them to see which of them is best in conduct. The whole point of this creation is this test. How are you going to behave? How are you going to conduct yourself? He who created death and life, that he may test you to see which of you is best in conduct. Now we're not commenting on the verses. There's a lot to be said about each one of these verses. Now it's the key here is only this idea of the test. You see, when you read the verses of the Quran, you see the point of our creation is to go through this test. So no one can come back and say, why were people not just guided? Why did Allah subhanahu wa not impose this guidance more on people? Well, it defies the purpose. The purpose is to be tested to see if you are going to accept the faith or not. It is He who made you successors on earth. You see in every one of these verses, and that's why I chose them, there's a lot of other ones. The Holy Quran is presenting the idea of the test from a different angle. From, if you read two verses before that, you see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about the manner in which He created the world, the manner in which He created earth and allowed us to use everything on it, the adornment, the beauties, the bounties, the blessings that we have on earth. All of this is so, so that we're tested. This is from one angle. From another angle, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created life and death for us to be tested. That's a lot more existential, right? A third angle. It is He who made you successors on the earth. So this is the idea of a little bit more of the philosophy of history. None of us just happen in a vacuum in history. All of us are inheriting something from previous generations and leaving something for other generations to inherit. Okay, so there is a philosophy of history as they refer to it here. It is He who made you successors on the earth and raised some of you in rank above others so that He may test you in respect to what He has given you. Another verse. And had your Lord wished, all those who are on earth would have believed. Would you then force people until they become faithful? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have forced them, could have made them. So here the Holy Quran is specifically talking to the Holy Prophet, but He's talking to everyone who wants others to be believers. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, had he wished, he would have done that. You don't control the part where people have the free will to choose and not to choose. This is the part that must be preserved in every human being. This is the, where it stops. You can try to guide, you can communicate, but you can't force that last step, which is, and they accept the thing. If we wish, we will send down to them a sign from the sky, from the heavens, before which their heads will remain bowed in humility. So in other words, the Holy Quran is saying if we wanted to, we could then send down signs where people have absolutely no choice but to believe and to remain in that faith. But then there's no test. And so we're not going to use that kind of sign. Okay? Now we're starting to see this philosophy of the miracle and the philosophy of the divine signs. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to get you back to the right direction, but not impose on you a will, uh, a faith from the outside without your will. And then the, this last verse, well, I put it at the end, had Allah wished, He would have brought them together on guidance. So basically He could have made all of humanity as one unit and all of them guided. All of them believers. And the Quran, this verse, ends with, so do not be one of the ignorant. And to me, this is a warning. Someone who does not understand this <coughs> philosophy of the free will is falling in this category of the ignorant. You're not exercising proper judgment here. You're missing the point. The point is that people go through the test and the tribulation to see if they're going to accept or not accept the faith. Okay, so these are some of the verses. There's many others, but I think this gives a, a good idea. And all of this, as we said, to go back here, the idea of the, when we said the purpose of the creation is the test. Okay, now let's go to the third objection. So again, these are the objections to prophethood and revelation for those who just joined. <clears throat> So this third objection, if we look at it, if we dismantle it the way that it's presented in the book, it's actually two objections, or one objection that becomes two different arguments. So keeping in mind our claim that the prophets, the messengers, people who are communicating the revelation, have access to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, have access to the supernatural world. If we keep that in mind, then, again, it's going to be an attack on the effectiveness of prophethood as a means to guide human beings. Then, one part of the argument says, how come is it that when we look at prophets and how they lived and what they contributed to, we don't really see that they contributed much to humanity and the way human beings live in this world? Okay, so this is part of the argument, or one version of the argument. We see that the prophets did not create means of luxurious living and comforts, or allow people to discover scientific truths that we are now getting to in this world. Things that are extremely beneficial for human beings. Prophets could have done a better job explaining to us disease so that people's health throughout humanity would have been in better shape, let's say. Okay, and this can be applied to industrial, productive means, 
we could look at technology, we could look at the way society works, we could look at different aspects. You can apply it as you wish and, and, and see fit. So the crafts that human beings deal with, the sciences that human beings use, the means of technology, of communication, and so on and so forth, we see that the prophets did not really make huge contributions in those fields. Okay? And that is very problematic. If they were truly divinely appointed and had access to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, had access to something beyond nature, then why did they not use that access to allow humanity to evolve at a faster pace? To discover the things that humanity is now discovering centuries later or millennia later. Why, why did they not give us access to those and just reveal to us the secrets of nature and allow us to evolve as a, as a species a lot faster and a lot better? What were they waiting for? So that's part of the argument or one, one type, one version of the argument. The second version of this argument, so keep this in mind. The second version or a second branch of this argument, something that branches out of it, is this idea that, and I, I think I, I wrote it here, the marketing strategy. That, that's what I'm calling, it's not in the book. If these prophets, if these messengers who have access to revelation beyond the natural world, and they actually used it and showed people the kind of comfortable, convenient, luxurious life that you could live by using those means, by having access to that kind of knowledge, and creating a political order, a social order, a financial order that is attractive to people, then they would of course be more effective in recruiting people and having them believe in the message that they're communicating. Right? So if I see someone who happens to be living a difficult life, uh, there, there's just difficulty upon difficulty, they're poor, they have nothing to show in terms of livelihood for what they're preaching and what they're trying to teach people, this may not be very attractive to me. And if I see someone on the opposite end of the spectrum, living the comfortable, luxurious life, I may be a lot more attracted to that, and I will end up believing in the message as a result of the comfortable lifestyle that I see and what religion can actually give me if I accept that kind of religion. Okay? So there's one part of the argument which is how come <coughs> prophets did not use, let's call them human crafts and human sciences, okay, to advance humanity and give more to humanity and contribute to the maturity and evolution of humanity. We don't see a lot of that. That's one. And two, why did, not, did they not use those means to attract people and retain them to religion. It would have been a lot smarter and a lot better for them to use those means that human beings in general are attracted to, namely luxurious, comfortable, convenient, you know, financially wealthy, well-off lifestyles would be a lot more attractive to the majority of people. Why did they not use those means? Therefore, the manner in which prophethood unfolded, again, is ineffective. Okay? The answer. So here we have four answers. They're not presented <coughs> in these four ideas, but I think it's clearer if we present them in that manner. 
The first point and the second and the third are going to be a lot more related to the first version of the objection. So the first version, the first format is concentrating on our world in this life. When we live in this world, we want to be able to enjoy as much as possible what nature can give us, what social order can give us, what political order can give us. So the expectation is that prophethood or revelation is going to allow us to reap those benefits a lot more. Okay, so we'll see that the first three answers are going to be a lot more directly related to that version of the argument, of the objection. The last one is going to be more related to the second part of the argument, which is, isn't it better for the purposes of prophethood to attract people through those means? But the point here is to guide more people. Under the pretext of guiding more people, we need to use those means. So we'll see that the fourth argument has to do with, or the fourth, fourth response has to do more with this second nature. <coughs> this is something that we talked about in the previous lesson. This idea of the limitations of human knowledge. We said there's a reason why revelation is necessary. And in large part, it has to do with the fact that human reason is limited. There are things that human reason will able to reach, but after a very long time. And so revelation may come and, and give it a nudge, a push in the right direction, and it'll save us a lot of time. Okay? But we put that aside. This is not our main concern. This is secondary. This is not the purpose of revelation. What is the purpose of revelation? It's to give us access to the truths, to the information, to the facts that we do not have any access to. Human reason has no access to anything that happens in the afterlife. I can't put anything there in the lab and do tests on it. I need a source of information that tells me where we came from and where we're going and how to be in between the two. And we said that is limited to revelation. If we agree with that, then someone should not come back and say, so how come revelation is not helping me live better in this world? Even though our claim is it will help you, but for argument's sake to keep it very simple, the short answer is, this is not the purpose of revelation. The purpose of revelation is to allow you to live happily in this world and the next by giving you access to information and truth that is not accessible to you, that your human reason cannot do anything about. You don't have any reach, you don't have the tools to get to that kind of information. Which means what? Which means that there is a responsibility on us as human beings to use our reason and to use the tools that we were given to explore the rest on our own. To discover nature and investigate nature, that is our responsibility. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us the tools specifically to do that. He doesn't need to give us a lot more from beyond the natural world. He gave us our ability to use sense perception and reason specifically to understand this world and to use it in the best way possible. Okay? So, answer number one, I should not be expecting the prophets and revelation to be contributing that much to biology and chemistry and <coughs> physics and geology and economy and, 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 because that's not the main purpose. Okay? 
That's answer number one. The main purpose is that they contribute. They not only contribute, they are the sole provider of the information related to that which human beings do not have access to. That's the main purpose of revelation. Okay? That's answer one. Answer two. There's something implied in the objection, which is, it is as though it's a good thing guaranteed for humanity, for human beings, to evolve technologically, and to evolve in the industrial world, and to evolve in their production needs, and to have more luxurious, comfortable, convenient lives, and so on and so forth. There's something implied. So if we dismantle it, it's easy to see if the purpose, the point of our existence is the spiritual, is the moral edification and development, then someone needs to explain to us how those luxuries, the technological advances, the scientific progress are going to enable us to be more spiritually perfect, more morally developed, because that is the purpose. Or at least that's the purpose of, if you want to keep it very simple, as I said, that's the purpose of revelation. Okay, for argument's sake. Two. Third response. After everything we said, who says that prophets didn't contribute to all those fields? And so, as we said, keeping in mind this idea that we've had 124,000 prophets, and we've only heard a little bit, as the Qur'an says, we'll tell you some of their stories. We'll recount some of their stories to you. Okay, we don't even know the full story of any of them. But just based on this little tip of the iceberg that we've had, we know that they contributed to the societies that they lived in. And this requires a very lengthy discussion to go through the lives, at least to the extent that we understand and we have been exposed to through the Holy Qur'an and a little bit of the narrations, and we can see that they contributed a lot to the worlds, to the societies that they lived in. So it's not as easy to say none of them had anything to do with the world they were living in. And so very specific examples that we have in the Holy Quran, for instance, Prophet Dawood and he's mentioned in the Holy Quran for some of the things that he did which were advances for human civilization. It says that we softened brass or iron for him so that he may build the shields that you wear in, in, in military uh, campaigns. For instance, that's one example. It's basically telling us that there's something that did not exist before him that he introduced. Okay? Or in his judgment and the way he deals with legislative issues and conflicts between people that today we would call the legal code. And we have judges and courts and the judiciary entirely built around this. Well, if we look at the story of Prophet Dawood and Prophet Sulaiman in the Holy Quran, we see that there's an insistence on this. Or if we look at Prophet Sulaiman and the kind of kingdom that he managed, who says what else we could discover if we actually studied it properly? And where his power started and stopped? Or how he dealt with the other nations around him? Does this not fall under political theory? Does this not fall under governance? Does this not fall under, under, under? Okay? Dhul Qarnayn is mentioned in Surah Al-Kahf. Again, we have a little bit of his story. We don't know his full story. Assuming that he's a prophet, we're not sure if he's a prophet. But again, just from reading 
when the Holy Quran tells us from the story, we see that he's definitely a very active member of his world. He's contributing and not in very mundane, trivial things. He's actually changing very significant things in the world that he lives in. Okay, and again, this requires a very lengthy discussion. How Dhul-Qarnayn is using the power that was given to him, that he was granted, and how he was using it. The Quran says he would meet people and we would tell him, we would ask him, how do you want to treat these people? Do you want to punish them or do you want to treat them with kindness? And he says, well, those who are unjust, we're going to punish them. And then Allah will punish them in the afterlife. And those who are just, we will give them our command gently or softly. Well, this is already part of explaining to us the power that this man held in his world. Okay? Assuming that he was a prophet. Yusuf السلام, and his whole story is explained. But we have a verse in, in Surah Yusuf السلام, where to me like there's a shift here, there's a key. After he talks to the king of his time and he tells him, Give me the governance of over the storehouses where you store all your grains. The granaries of the land. Okay, so there's an expertise there that he's going to contribute with and to share with that world that they did not know about. And he taught them that from the dream that he saw. And he told them what to do with the grains to preserve them for the seven to ten years that are to come. Okay, so this is just glimpses that we're getting from the contributions of the prophets and their lives and their worlds. And of course, we have the Holy Prophet, and this could be series upon series of his contributions and what they became later on. And then we also have the same thing with the Imams. Okay, and especially in the time of Imam Ali alayhi salam, the kind of society that he created, how he changed the world. There is a before Imam Ali and after Imam Ali in terms of the way you build a city. What they call today social welfare or the welfare states, go back and see how it was introduced by Imam Ali salam, things that did not exist before him. The way he built prisons and dealt with prisoners, for instance. These things did not exist before him. The way he dealt with orphans in his society. This is what the social welfare that we have today, but we have a lot of things that came from Imam Ali salam. Hence the recognition of the United Nations of his contributions to the social aspect of, of human life. Anyways, so this is all, as we said, for argument's sake, if we said that the contributions are not taking place by the prophets, then here are the answers. And yet, the third point is, and we believe that the prophets did contribute, but the point of their mission is not to contribute. This is as a, as a secondary means. The point of their mission is to guide people in those things where people cannot be guided by themselves on their own because human reason is limited that way. And then the fourth point. The fourth point, as we said, is the answer to the second part of the objection, which is, as we said, the first one has to do more with contributions to this world, to this life. The second part of it is the better purpose, better serve the purpose of prophethood through using these means. Okay, so what I refer to as the marketing strategy. You use the worldly means to attract people. You create luxury and comfort and convenience and wealth so that people are attracted to the prophets that way. So again, this is 
This needs to be brought back, and it's subtle, but it needs to be brought back to the same point that we said, which is the entire purpose is to be constantly in a situation of test and tribulation. It's not to be in a situation where the truth is so manifestly clear that it's even impossible and ridiculous to consider anything but. Okay? So this is the main idea in this response. Had the prophets created these kinds of worlds where everything is easy and luxurious and comfortable, this is not the kind of faith that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted people to come with. These are external conditions that may be distractions. These may lead people to go in the wrong way in understanding what faith is supposed to be. And we're going to see in a couple of instances, I'm going to jump over this last point. If we go to, I believe this is in Surah Al-Furqan, this is one example in Surah Al-Furqan where they tell the Holy Prophet, this is an objection narrated by the Holy Quran about the Holy Prophet. And they say, what, source, what sort of messenger is this who eats food and walks in the marketplace? Why has not an angel been sent down so as to be a warner along with him? And we talked a little bit about this in the last session. Or, why is not a treasure cast down to him? Or why does he not have a garden from which he eats? And the wrongdoers say, you are just following a bewitched man. Look what kinds of comparisons they drew for you. So they went astray, then they were unable to find the way. Blessed is he who, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, blessed is he who, if he will, can grant you better than all of that, gardens beneath which streams flow, and he will make you for you palaces, and so on and so forth. But the answer, the implied answer is here, but he will not. Because that's not the purpose. The purpose is not to create that kind of environment where people see and they're attracted to the luxuries that we have given you and therefore they become faithful. And in case this is not very clear, there is a very direct mention of this and an explanation of the subtleties of all of this in a part of one of the sermons of Imam Ali السلام, called Al-Qasi'ah, Al-Khutbah Al-Qasi'ah. Al-Qasi'ah basically means when you blame someone or condemn them. So I put this part of it, it's a, it's a beautiful sermon, it really requires study and it's most likely, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's the longest sermon in Nahj al-Bala'a. It's a long sermon and this portion specifically here, he talks in, initially about the arrogance of Iblis and he, it's a lot having to do this sermon with this notion of arrogance versus humility and us understanding where we're supposed to be in this world, our position, our rank and our status reminding us how Iblis was and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have created Adam alayhi salam in a completely different way from a light that will bewilder anyone who will see it and yet he created him from clay and dust and ash okay and the khutbah goes on the sermon goes on and then right before this portion where he starts talking about the the prophets in general he talks about how prophet Musa and prophet Harun alayhi salam they walked in on Fir'aun. And Imam Ali tells us they walked in and they were wearing wool 
very simple clothes. They were wearing wool clothes and they were holding wood canes, branches in their hands. And they came to Fir'aun and they told him, stop making Bani Israel worship you and give them to us and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they say, Imam Ali alayhi salam says, Fir'aun laughed when he saw them and he turned to the elites around him and he said, look at these two, look at what they're wearing and what they're asking of me to do. At least had they been wearing gold with gold bracelets, and the Quran mentions that, then maybe they're worthy of being listened to. Okay, so there's different lessons to be taken from all of this, including Imam Ali's insistence here. He's basically telling them, you want to be believers, you want to be followers of the prophets. Well, the prophets, this is how they lived. This is who they were. This was their conduct. These were the luxuries that they had. Okay, this is where their focus was in life. And here, so Imam Ali continues. I'm mentioning this just so that you have a little bit of the context, but the purpose of, of me mentioning is this paragraph here. He says, if God had wished to open for his prophets when he sent them the treasures of gold and golden mines and adorned them with planted gardens and to gather around them the birds of the skies and the beasts of the earth. So I want you to, to see the image that the Imam is, is painting or describing to us. So imagine that kind of prophet. Okay, he, is, he has access to all the gold of the world. He is surrounded <coughs> by the birds in the sky and the beasts of the land. This is how he comes to you as a prophet. He could have done so, but had he done so, then trial would have been cancelled and reward would be nullified. And if the prophets were people of an authority that cannot be assaulted or honor that cannot be damaged or kingdoms towards which the necks of people turn and towards, towards which the saddles of mounts are set, it would have been very easy for people to understand the lessons and quite difficult to feel any vanity. But the point is that we live in a world where it's possible to have vanity and choose not to. That's the point. They would have then believed out of a fear that overwhelms them or a desire that inclines them and the intentions would have been mixed and the good deeds divided. What does this, this sentence here is very, very subtle. He's basically saying that your intention, your niyyah, would have been split in part with purity, sincerity, and believing in God, and in part you're looking at the things of this world. This is why you have faith. And he's saying this is not what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted. He didn't want to make your intention and your faith in Him split between wanting the things of this world and out of fear because this prophet is so powerful he will come and punish you and no. He wants your faith sincerely, purely towards him. But, so if I go back just a little bit, they would have then believed out of a fear that overwhelms them or a desire that inclines them and the intentions would have been mixed and the good deeds divided. But Allah glorified is he, wished that the following of his messengers and the belief in his books and the humility before his face and the neediness towards his command and the submission to his obedience all be proper to him only, in which there should be not an iota of anything else. And as the tribulation and choice become greater in difficulty, the reward also becomes greater. So of course there is a reward that ensues and that follows, that's compatible with human beings having to go with that, through that kind of difficulty. This is, everything is based on a fair system, on a just system. 
I think I'll we'll stop here. Wassallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin wa tahirin. Thank you, Sayyid Hassan. So we still have like around five to seven minutes for questions. We're going to start with the sisters if they have any question, and then we'll move to the brothers. Uh, preferably the question related to what the Sayyid was saying. More pressure. Uh, Abdullah. Okay. Um, so the last part we're talking about uh, how uh, the intention we split between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Sorry, that was our intention to be split uh, towards Allah and uh, to the worldly but uh, it could be our uh, post or slip. But if every day with the first opportunity we have uh, work, we have so many problems, we have all these things, that at the same time is a distraction towards Allah divide our intention anyway. So what could argue like okay, what about just a simple life that gives us sustenance or that's how it could get sustenance but like uh, for example a fixed income for everybody in the world with our security uh, for everybody in the world, but not out of fear, but just for the safety that you have time to focus on the last part of the tunnel. But at the same time, I know others could argue, but this would just back to even, because now you see if you have nothing to think of a lot too. So uh, it's kind of like, uh, but like, uh, I, don't, I don't feel like it's a 100% argument that to say we need our uh, trial and tribulation. It kind of depends on the person, I don't know. It does depend on the person to need or not need. It's not that we need or not need the trial and tribulation. The trial and tribulation are different for everybody. Right. Uh, we have narrations from the prophets, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talking to Musa salam in some narrations. We also have narrations from the Imams telling us that for some one person, the test and the tribulation is by giving them money. Mm -hmm. And for the other person, it's to taking the money away. Okay, and you know, this is one example, and you can you know, multiply that by any other bounty in the world. The idea is not necessarily that there is or there isn't. In our system, in our belief, there is test and tribulation taking place all the time. Every bounty, everything we get is a tribulation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we read, if He's giving you something, it's to see what you're going to do with it. If he doesn't give you something, it's to see how you're going to react and what you're going to do about it. About it. That, I think, is a staple. Like, that does not change. The idea is then, why were prophets not into a world of luxuries and comforts? Why were they not in a world that invites people to concentrate on this world more? And there's a part that is not mentioned in the lesson here. So this is a key to keep in mind. Generally speaking, and we see this in our religion throughout, especially in akhlaq, but generally speaking, it's throughout our religion. It's not that we want people to move away from building this world. That's not the issue. There is nothing wrong. In fact, everything right about building this world. And we have verses in the Quran, and we have narrations. The problem is, Human beings by default, if I don't do anything to a human being, if I, I don't need to nudge him and to encourage him and to incentivize him for him to look at this world. This is what's happening by default. This is what's happening without any external encouragement. So what I need to do, because the point of revelation, as we said, one of the things that we mentioned, the point, one of the points of revelation is to create that balance in a human being 
How do I balance it? Well, the human being, the whole Quran says, is made up of, you know, the, why is it, O you who believe, why is it that when we tell you, spend in the sake of Allah subhanahu wa why is it that you become heavy towards the earth? Okay, why is it because we're created from the earth? Of course we're heavy towards the earth. But then there's other verses that remind us that we're also created from something else. And that something else is not the earth, it's on the other side. Okay, and there's things that are killing you and there are things that are bringing you back to life, as the Quran says. Go towards those things that are bringing you back to life. But why the insistence on? For every verse that talks about the importance of being balanced in this world, so to Isra, for instance, when it says when you spend, spend and give and, and sacrifice, but do it in a way that does not corrupt your li livelihood. Okay, so it's not saying sacrifice everything and forget everything. But for every one of these verses, you're going to find 10, if not more, 100 verses that are reminding you of the hereafter and that there's a death awaiting you and that this world is only ornaments and playthings and things that you should not worry about. Don't spend too much time on it. Why? Because by default, just the way you're wired and created, you are flesh and blood. You are part of this world. You're anchored here. It's not, it doesn't require a lot for me to tell you, you are living in this world, take care of it, manage your affairs properly. You should get to that on your own. If there's a revelation coming to God, to me, for the salvation of my soul, it needs to concentrate, to balance things, it needs to concentrate on the other side. So that at the end, I can balance things. So the constant nudging and the constant incentives and the constant motivation and preaching and admonitions is always about the other side. That unless you are one of those exceptional people who happens for some reason or other to be fully aware of it all the time, the majority of us are distracted from it. I'm not distracted from this world. I'm, I'm actually distracted of everything else but this world all the time. So I need something to pull me out of it. And to remind me, by the way, don't forget, there's something else. This is the immediate. This is the imminent world. There's a transcendent. There's something beyond. Don't forget it. And so the point of someone who is sent by God cannot be about this world. He's is trying to reestablish the balance. What's in this world, you already have it. It's already in you. You can take care of it. You can work on it. And you'll get there eventually. And that's not the purpose. You are in this world and you'll get there. But at the end, that's not even the purpose. And there are people who are poor and people who are rich and people who are living in luxury and people who are living in the most poor of conditions. But none of this is any criteria for the moral, spiritual aspect of these people. Because that's not the point. These are just external conditions, right? And I don't think we need to go through the examples and the anecdotes and the, of all of this. So if you are someone, and this is like, I'll end with this, if you're someone who is capable of living the fully balanced life while living in luxury, good for you. The problem is when we look at our prophets and we look at our imams and we look at our scholars, they insist on trying not to put themselves in a situation of luxury. They don't want to be in a condition that where they have to fight themselves constantly 
by placing themselves in a situation of distraction. Why? Why do I th make things difficult, more difficult for myself? They're already difficult enough. I don't need to add to the luxuries and conveniences. I'm not saying this is what we're going to do. Okay, we're not going to switch over overnight and go towards that. I'm explaining that from an akhlaq point of view, from the uh, spiritual development point of view, the reason why there is this insistence on avoiding luxuries, there's nothing wrong with the luxuries. There's wrong, something wrong with being distracted by them and being attached to them. Can you be in the luxuries and not being attached to them? Great, have all of them. So that's what we believe in Sulaiman Okay, he can be in them and not be distracted by them. Good for him. Most likely, I would not be able to. Of course, I'm going to be distracted from Allah and distracted from death and distracted from the afterlife with what's in this world. Okay, so that's kind of the. But it's a very good question that requires a. But the theory prophet or our prophet could have the intellectual like Ali chose not to. Of course. Ali the specific reason why he chose not to, because Nabi Sulaiman. Did. Yeah. And it helped him and the community a lot. But our prophet decided not to. Anyway, it could be a bigger discussion about this, but anyway, it's a, Well, the very a short answer is if we look at Prophet Sulaiman, we see that he was the exception. He was an exception yeah, among the prophets. Yeah. The majority of prophets did not yeah. ask for that. Nabi Sulaiman asked for that for specific purposes. He said, Oh God, give me a kingdom that you will never give anyone else. So that's a different. A different kind of ask and a different kind of prayer. Otherwise, the other prophets were not into that, right? And we see this is what we find: Prophet Musa salam, or Ibrahim, or they each asked something specific to them. Okay, so this was in the case of Sulaiman. Yeah.